Y'all can find a seat. All you ladies who are freezing, it's got to cuddle up or warm up. How's everybody's day? Yeah? How's everybody's night? Some of us are a little more sleepy from a little siren last night. But thank you, Jesus. Everybody's okay. I slept right through it all. I slept good. The rain comes in Texas. I am out cold. Don't call my house. Well, I am so pumped you guys are here for our very, very, very first NCC Cultivate. We're super pumped about this new event that we're doing. I am here in lieu of my handsome husband who is home, just not feeling great tonight. So uh, keep him in your prayers. And uh, But either way, we are really, really, really pumped to have Dr. Jeff McCruder with us tonight. Um, yeah, and all the saggy peeps were like, ah! um, So... NCC Cultivate, what we're trying to do, y'all, you know we're passionate about helping you to grow, to keep moving forward in your relationship with God. And we know if you've been checking out the next steps display out there and that next steps piece that we've been going through together, there are these personal spiritual practices, things that help us to keep chugging forward, right? Um, we get, if we, if we stop practicing, if we stop seeking, if we stop pushing, we stagnate. And, and you don't stay in one spot. You either are growing or you're declining. And so what we want to do at New Community Church is to just create some opportunities for you to be able to engage with some content, wrestle with it, grow, and keep moving forward in your relationships with God. So tonight we're focusing on Bible study and so whenever we talked about um, this particular topic, it was a no-brainer about who we wanted to bring in to share with you all, because you all know we've had Dr. Magruder for, does anyone remember I Must Ask You a Question? Yes. Ah, it's one of my favorite sermon series ever with the mustache. Um, or what was the other one? Elephant in the Room. Oh, that's right. Um, and so we brought in doc Dr. Magruder for those, and he's been up here on the panel and really challenged us with some things. Some of us have had him in class uh, as well, and he is a fantastic speaker, and this is a really, really great um, topic for him to share with you. And he can share, like, some of his... Uh, I don't know, degrees and specializations and the reasons why he's so amazing um, with y'all. But before we get started, let's go ahead and pray together, all right? Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for providing us this really tangible way to connect with you on a daily basis. Thank you for your wisdom in our lives and for providing your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And Lord, thank you for every person in this room, those who are still making it here. Um, God, I just, I pray tonight that our hearts would be open, that our eyes would be open. Um, Lord, that we would learn from you, that we would grow together. Um, and Father, that your word would come alive to us in just a new way, uh, that you would just reveal to us maybe some areas in our life that uh, we need to be challenged in. Help us, God, to be open-hearted with one another and, um, and to hear what you have to say tonight and respond accordingly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Amen. Dr. Magruder, I'm going to hand it Amen. over to Thank you. Are you Sarah. good? You got sound? I think so. I think so. I can yeah. hear you. I hear Wait, myself. Come on all up. Right. Give him a hand, you Thank guys. Thank you, everybody. Great to see you, new community. And thank you, uh, Sarah, and we're, we're praying for Aaron. I, I have to tell you how excited I am to share with you tonight what I'm going to be sharing with you about. I'm going to be talking to you about studying the Bible as a spiritual discipline to increase your knowledge and to increase the power in your life. Now, at Southwestern, without any risk of exaggeration, 
without any hint of overstatement, there is one class that changes a student's life once they've taken it. In fact, we, we can almost think of a student's experiences before they took this class and after they took this class. It is one of those paradigm-changing, life-altering experiences in which they are imparted with knowledge and skills that they take with them for the rest of their life. That class is called Bible study. In fact, you can tell when someone has uh, been at Southwestern for a semester or two as to whether they've taken Bible study or not, because if they've taken Bible study, whenever you quote the scripture, they'll say, that's out of context. Or they'll listen to a sermon and say, I'm not sure that's what that text means. Or they'll say, that was amazing because that's actually what the Bible is teaching. Bible study has that kind of impact. Well, I want you to know tonight, I'm going to share some of what I learned and some of what I've taught in Bible study free of charge. Amen. And my hope is that it is going to impact your life in the same way that it has impacted so many. Let me begin first by reminding you of something that the Apostle Paul says about growing in grace and knowledge. He says we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. The Bible teaches us we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. There is nothing that you will grow in if you don't apply yourself with discipline. Let me just say that again. There is nothing that you will grow in unless you apply yourself with discipline. Now, let me anticipate a concern or a potential objection or a question or a complaint that someone might have. Why do I need to go to all this trouble to learn how to study the Bible when I can just open it up and a verse jumps out at me? Fair enough. Here's the challenge, though. You are not always going to be in the state of mind where what jumps out at you is going to be properly interpreted. The Bible may be inspired and infallible, but you are not. Look at your neighbor and say, you are not infallible. Look back at the other neighbor and say, you better watch the way you're talking to me and I have my victory yet. A second reason why we may not believe, and I really strongly believe, that that approach to reading the Bible is always the best way to go, is that often what happens is that way of reading the Bible leads us to taking the Bible out of context. It, it gives us an approach to the Bible that's like reading a Chinese fortune cookie instead of actually asking, when I read that verse, what came before and what came after? Now listen, I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been a minister a long time. I know what it is to have experiences with God in which in His grace, He has chosen to speak to me with a single Bible verse, or I've said I'm so tired or beat up or weary or struggling that I just open the Bible and hope that something jumps out at me. But how many of you know that says more about God's grace than it does my study methods? Now, to drive this home a little bit further, here's what I'm going to suggest. First slide, please. We need to learn how to go on an interpretive journey. And for those of you who are readers, I want to encourage you. This is the book that I'll be drawing the major teaching I'll be doing tonight out of, Grasping God's Word by J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes. Next slide, please. 
Three bad methods of biblical interpretation. And by the way, I will take time for questions, comments, yeah, buts, what ifs, complaints, and mama said. Okay? We'll make time for that. But, but here are three bad methods of biblical interpretation. Here's the first. Intuitive or feel, feels right approach. Intuitive or feels right approach. Here's, here's what I mean by this, okay? If the only way you're deciding whether your interpretation of the Bible is true or accurate is that it makes you feel good, that can lead you into some bad places. That can lead you into some really, really dangerous doctrine. In fact, there are going to be times in which you're going to read the Bible correctly, and it's going to make you feel bad. There's going to be times in which you're reading the Bible correctly, and it's going to challenge you. It's going to convict you. And so the problem then, I think you can see, is that if the only way we are reading the Bible to discover whether what we think it's teaching is true, or pardon me, what we think it is saying is true or not, is this intuitive or feels right approach. By the way, I, I began by saying that Paul said to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Do you know what else the Apostle Paul said somewhere else to young Timothy? He said, watch this, rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly divide the word of truth. Now, let me ask you something. If you can rightly divide the word of truth, that means you can wrongly divide the word of truth, okay? Look at your neighbor say, you can't be more spiritual than the Bible. Go ahead and do that right now. You can't be more spiritual than the Bible. So what we're doing by paying attention to learning how to read and interpret correctly, this is spiritual. This is biblical. This is necessary. We're going to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, and we're going to be interested in rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why this feels right approach isn't going to be enough. Uh, the other is a spiritualizing approach. And here's what I mean. You read the Bible, and instead of asking, what did the inspired writer mean when they said that? Instead, what you say is, this means whatever I want it to mean. I'm going to hyper-spiritualize this so that whatever interpretation makes me feel good or I prefer is what I read. It's kind of like when people go to a therapist and they're shown an ink blot and they say, what do you see, right? And someone's like a butterfly and someone else is like a rhino and I'm like an ink blot. Uh, but the point is that the interpretation is not in the blot, it's in the mind of the person. But what we want to do is move beyond that. And again, we know that God in his grace and mercy has met us in places where we approach the Bible this way. But we need to move beyond this and say, I'm not just going to spiritualize everything. I'm going to find out actually what the Spirit inspired the writer to say. Third, the shrug your shoulders approach, okay? And that is, hey, look, people disagree about what the Bible says. So whatever, whatever you get out of it is what you get out of it. And what I get out of it is what I get out of it. You know, I can remember being in math classes where they'd have one problem, four students, and three different answers. That didn't mean that there wasn't a right answer. It just meant that sometimes there's some math problems that are tough. Everybody, everybody with me? The fact that people might disagree about something does not mean that you have to give up your strong belief about something if you've put in the work. And to put it another way, just because people disagree about something doesn't mean that there's a right answer. And I'm sure there are a few of you here, you have real aptitude as mathematicians. But chances are, if I were to, you know, put up a long series of numbers and say, now, without a calculator, give me the sum total. 
we might have more than one answer. Some of you would be closer. Some of you would be further. Some would be like, that's too hard. I can't do anything about it. But here's the one thing we'd all have to agree on. There was a right answer. And even though we have to put the work in, there is a right answer. So what I'm suggesting is that these three approaches that sometimes God in his mercy has used because he's merciful are not the approaches we want to adopt day after day, month after month, year after year, if our desire is to grow in grace and knowledge, rightly divide the word of truth, and discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So let's get practical. Next slide, please. What we need is an approach that's consistent. We need an approach that we can apply when we feel good and when we don't. When we feel spiritual and when we don't. When our health is great and our health is not cooperating. When the weather is beautiful and the sun is out and the birds are singing and we're like, I'm going to open the Bible and study it and this is wonderful. In days where it feels like the world has landed on us. We need consistency, okay? When people want to embark on any kind of diet or exercise program, it is consistency that leads to results. You do it when you feel like it, you do it when you don't. You do it when you've got the time, you do it when you don't. Consistency. So that's what we're going to be looking for here, a method that's consistent. Next slide, please. All right. We need... (laughs) I'm revealing something about my age here. Um, We need, and that I would think this is funny or relevant, um, we need an approach that works. Watch this. We need an approach that works on every passage of the Bible, not just the easy parts. Now, I want to admit something to you. There are parts of the Bible that are harder to understand than others. Full stop. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. We shouldn't be in denial about that. For that reason, then, we need a method that's going to help us to better understand not only the easier parts of the Bible, but the more difficult parts of the Bible as well. We need an approach that's not based on intuition, feeling, or experience. Now... Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, said your reading of the Bible, your studying of the Bible is not complete until you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. I believe that. I believe that what our Bible study is going to lead to is an experience with God, and it's going to inform our experience with God, and it's going to enrich our experience with God. But if all we do is go on feelings our spiritual life is going to go up and down and up and down and up and down, and our interpretations of Scripture will be unhealthy and inaccurate. We need an approach that helps us to find the true meaning of the text, and that's what we're going to be spending time on tonight. And then we need an approach that also helps us to apply that meaning to our lives. Let me me really stress these two. There's nothing else you get from the fawns. Let me just say this. We need an approach to the Bible that's going to teach us what it means to them and what it means for us. Let me put it even more clearly. We need an approach to the Bible that teaches us what it meant to them and what that means for us. What Corinthians understood when they heard Paul say, what the disciples understood when they heard Jesus teach, And then what we are supposed to do about that today, living in the 21st century. We need an approach that says, 
This helps me understand there and then, and this helps me understand here and now. And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. Now, before I go any further, don't be shy, don't be hesitant, don't be modest. Question or comment based, about anything, based on anything I've said so far. Really what I've tried to do is stress how biblical it is to discipline yourself, to rightly divide the word of truth, to have a plan that you use consistently, and why it is that some of the other methods that people have used don't really grow you in the Lord. They don't really grow you in grace and knowledge. That's really been the two things I've tried to stress. In a minute, I'm about to get real practical. But before I do that, let's take some questions or comments. Anybody on this side have anything they'd like to say? Question, comment, yeah, but what if? What about I once heard? Anybody? Yes, sir. Is there a specific version of the Bible that you would recommend for someone trying to get to? This is a great question. Version is of the Bible. Okay. First, let me say, and I'm, I'm going to answer a question before I get to your question. First, let me say that there used to be a real anxiety about Bible translations. What is the Bible translation? And I'll tell you at least where some of that anxiety came from. The fact that most people only had access to one translation. Or they only had the budget for one translation. Or they were only going to buy one translation. Today, you can go online, you can Google parallel version. And what will happen is you will come up with English translations right next to each other. And you can even see where the differences are. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about my journey. When I was a brand new Christian, 16 years old, I, you're never going to believe this, but I used to be a metalhead when I was in high school. No kidding. Um, I was. I was really into heavy metal. And, and the only thing I knew about the Bible is what Iron Maiden sang about. I mean, that was really all I had in Metallica. That was all I had. So here's what they gave me. The guys who led me to the Lord gave me a good news translation. Good news translation. It was very clear. It was very simple. Okay. Eventually, I graduated to the NIV. Now, when I study from the English, I prefer the New American Standard. However, here's the, here's the catch, okay? I can open up on software, and I can have all three of those Bibles. And by the way, I know some of you are waiting. I can have the King James right there. Because I will tell you this. The King James, when it comes to Psalm 23, there's nobody that translates Psalm 23 the way King James does, right? Uh, and, and so I'll have them right next to each other. And if there's a question about what may be uh, an interpretive issue, by having them right next to each other, I can see where those differences might be. But to get to the, 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 the heart of the question, I think new Christians are served very well by the Good News Translation, by the NIV, uh, somebody, some, some people ask about the message. I think the message is okay. I, I would want to study more than one, but especially where, with where all of you are, like you're ready to go deeper. I, I would say the message is okay, but I wouldn't make that my primary. Okay, and please don't feel like you're being punished or shut down in any way. It's just there's other translations that are more accurate and are more focused on being accurate. The, the message is really about trying to make the big things clear. And I value that. I just think there comes a point where you, you want to be able to move on. Yeah, what a nice question. Thank you. Uh, a question from this side. A question from this side. Anybody have a question for this side? Yes, sir. Yeah, go on quick, but his question is your answer. Okay. Uh, shouldn't we 
You have multiple translations, right? Parallel because, right. Uh, and some are really focused on translations, and some are translated or working with characters. That's right. That's right. Nicely put. That's right. Let me let me let me repeat back just so everybody heard him. I'm going to use slightly different words, but he you absolutely captured it. So some Bible translations are more concerned with being literal. Some Bible translations are more concerned with clarity. And it's not that the people who are doing paraphrase or clarity are unconcerned with literalness. It's just that they're willing to make some choices in order that the audience will better understand what the author meant, which may mean that they're going to tweak a little bit what they said. Whereas there's other translations where they're really just going to get exactly what they said, but it may not always be easy for us to understand what they meant. And so what you have to do when you're looking at translations is decide where you are. But again, we don't have to choose that way anymore. Now we can look at parallel versions and get a pretty good idea. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. By the way, one last thing about this, because I don't know all of you very well, so I don't know where you are on the Bible translation. This gets me nervous and angry, you know, spectrum of things. One of the ways you can find out about how a Bible translation got put together is read the editor's notes in the very front. And they'll tell you where they're coming from. They'll tell you their doctrinal position. They'll even tell you how they put it together. And that can really, really help. Okay, here we go. Next slide, please. The interpretive journey. What I'm going to do, borrowing from grasping God's word, is I'm going to give you uh, a metaphor for interpreting Scripture called the interpretive journey. And there's going to be five steps in this journey. And each of these steps is an attempt, and I really want you to get this, it's an attempt to both understand what it meant to them and what it means for us. And please understand, nobody is asking you to choose between one or the other. I want you to understand what was back then, and I want you to get what you're supposed to do today. In fact, there's a very real sense that as Christians, we're just not getting that much out of it if all we're doing is figuring out what was there and then without applying it here and now. And at the same time, hear me carefully, we may not apply it here and now correctly if we don't know what was going on there and then. So it's a both and, not an either or, okay? Okay, the interpretive journey. Uh, by the way, just really quickly, I don't know, well, you can see this, so I'm going to walk you through five steps so we go from there and then to us and now. Everybody ready? Okay, here we go. Step one. Step one. Grasping the text in their town. Grasping the text in their town. Here's the question you want to ask in your first step in the interpretive journey. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? What did the text, and by the text, I mean the passage you're reading, the verses you're reading, the units of thought that you're reading, what did it mean to them? Now, I'm going to quickly offer a few online free resources that I don't get any kickback for recommending, okay? Let me just mention a few online resources that you can utilize to get more clarity on these questions, okay? I'm going to mention them really quickly. And by the way, if anybody wants me to send you my email 
well, pardon me, my uh, PowerPoint, you can email me, but of course the church can make it available. And if there's something you'd prefer to talk with me about uh, through email instead of raising your hand, we can do that too. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you, recommend four resources, three of them are free. Are you ready? Four resources, three of them are free. And again, I don't get a kickback on any of this. It's not like, and the fourth resource, meet me outside, I've got it in my trunk. It's not that kind of a thing, all right? Uh, okay, here we go. The original manuscripts, I've got them in the back. Okay, so meet me after service. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one, Bible.org. Bible.org, really good resource for being able to help you answer the question of what things were like there and then, Bible.org. Here's another one, studylight.org, study light, like studying light, right? Instead of studying darkness, studying light, studyinglight.org. It's a second. So Bible.org, studylight.org. Here's a third one. I really like this one, biblegateway.com, biblegateway.com. So again, Bible.org, studylight.org. BibleGateway.com. All three of those resources are free and they're online. And they can help you learn about the world of the Bible and the world of the people who that letter or that psalm or that instruction that you're now reading, who was originally written to. Now, here's the fourth one that, that does cost, but it can be an investment. For those of you who'd be interested in investing in some Bible software, there's software uh, made by a company called Accordance, Accordance. And what's interesting about Accordance is that depending upon how much money you spend, they can add more resources. So once you have the basic level or the basic package, they will begin to notify you when they update with more resources and you can add those resources for a fee. Accordance is an exceptional resource, and we train all our students at Southwestern how to use it. Okay, so again, three, re four resources, three of them for free. But here's what you're doing. You're asking, what, what did it mean to them? What did they hear? What did they understand? When they used that word, when they used that image, when they used that choice of illustration, what is it that it meant to them there and then? Now, let me tell you how this is going to help your spiritual life. First, you'll begin to get more out of sermons that you hear, Sunday school lessons that you listen to. You'll begin to be able to get more because your knowledge of the word and the world in which it was written will be developed. Tell you what else you'll be better at. And I don't say this to turn you into a Pharisee, okay? I don't say this to turn you into a member of the Sanhedrin, but you'll, your baloney detector will get better. No, I'm serious. Your baloney detector, you're like, hey, my baloney detector works just fine, pal. And even as I listen to you talk, it's beeping like may it like crazy. Um, I, I didn't think that was funny. Uh, but what I mean is you'll be in a position where you'll be able to be more discerning when you hear something on the radio, when you see something on television, if somebody shows up at your doorstep with some literature, everybody with me? Someone gets into a conversation. I know this doesn't apply to any of you, but sometimes people argue on the internet, on social media and blogs. By having more knowledge about the world of the Bible, 
you'll actually be in a better position to be able to discern when it is that somebody's rightly dividing the word of truth or whether they're mishandling it or not, okay? So there's a real spiritual virtue to this. So we're going to ask, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Let me give you a few questions. Let me just give you a few questions to ask um, in order to answer this question. Let me give you a few questions. Um, who wrote it? Who wrote it? Whatever we might be talking about. You know, we're talking about James. Well, James wrote it. Talking about Philippians, Paul wrote it, right? Um, Talk about the book of Revelation. Let's not go down that road. That'll be another session. But I've actually been in the cave where Revelation was written, and it was pretty gnarly, uh, especially because there was a Greek Orthodox service going on the same time I was in there. And I was like, whoa, we are not in Kansas anymore. Um, who wrote it? Second question, when did they write it? When did they write it? Just give you a few questions to look for when you're using these resources. When did they write it? Did they write it? during a time where the church wasn't being actively persecuted? Did they write it during a time where the church is enduring great persecution? Uh, was the author about to die, or did they have a few more years of ministry left? When did they write it? To whom did they write it? Who are the Philippians? In fact, next slide, please. Will you do this for me? Yeah. Who are the Philippians? What do we know about them? Let me just give you a little, little taste of what this kind of study will do for you. Philippi was a city that was favored by Roman military leaders when they retired. It had a great deal of wealth, a great deal of civic pride. And when Paul wrote to the Philippians, it was a relatively new city. And they took a lot of pride in their citizenship. They were South Lake of Macedonia. <laughs> Absolutely were. Now, I'm telling you, when you understand that about the Philippians, suddenly everything that Paul has to say about humility takes on a fuller and deeper meaning. Everybody, everybody following? So all of a sudden you see, you go from getting a, a picture to a clearer picture just because you answered those questions who wrote it? When did they write it? To whom did they write it? In the case of the Philippians, by the way, Paul started the church in Philippi. The book of Acts says that he did. Further, Philippians is one of the few places where Paul doesn't really have to get after them for problems they've gotten themselves into. It's largely an update and an opportunity to encourage them. Whereas in the book of Galatians, he has to get after them from the beginning to the end. So what you want to do then is say, what? Where are these people like? Where did they live? What's that going to tell me? Um, one other one, very quickly. The book of Ephesians. Principalities, powers, spirits of the air. It's all found in Ephesians 6. That language was language, by the way, that was used by people who lived in native Ephesus when they practiced their magic. So what Paul is doing is he's using that language and he's saying, guess what? There's one who is over all of that. He used their language and their vocabulary to better communicate the gospel message. Okay, so um, who wrote it? When did they write it? To whom did they write it? Okay, here's the fourth question. Why did they write it? Oh, I also said when, didn't I? Why did they write it? Look to see if you can identify the purpose of that book. Now, the Bible study sources I recommended, they're going to help you with that. They're going to help you with that. 
right now at Southwestern, I'm teaching a course called the Corinthian Correspondence, and we're working through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And one of the things that we identify is that there's a lot of division in the church in Corinth. There are a lot of people who are trying to make a name for themselves, trying to be recognized, trying to associate themselves with different leaders without all uniting to use their gifts and glorify Christ. Well, that purpose runs throughout the rest of the book. So one of the things you want to do is ask, why did they write it? So again, who wrote it? When did they write it? To whom did they write it? And why did they write it? Those four questions. And again, the Bible study sources I recommended will help with this. Okay, next step. Step two, measuring the width of the river to cross. So we've already identified as a lot of detail about the there and then, right? We've, we've discovered what did the text mean to them in their town? But then we have to stop and say, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? And, and folks, I really have to stress this, okay? There are some cultural differences between the world of the Bible and 21st century North America. There are some assumptions they have about children, about men and women, about slavery, that is much, much different than the assumptions that we would have. So it is true that there are Bible passages where it's real easy do not lie. Got it. Right? You know what I'm saying? I, I, um, uh, you know, love your neighbor. Got it. Even though the word neighbor is kind of interesting. Um, you know, why is it that he's called the good Samaritan? Good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron in Jesus's day. And today we have insurance companies and state laws and hospitals called good Samaritan, right? But the point is this, there are passages in the Bible that if you're not careful and if you don't ask this question, you will assume that it meant exactly to them what it means to us. And you may miss something. So what you want to do is ask, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from teaching to meddling. Look at your neighbor go, uh-oh. <laughs> Pastor Aaron be back next week to clean all this up. These really unusual passages about women keeping their head covered. You know, what is that all about? Now, there are churches to this day that still practice that. In the churches in the Dallas Metroplex that, that, that practice that. But the great majority of Christians in the West don't, don't practice that. And the reason is that we're living in a cultural time in which a woman having her head uncovered is not considered a lack of modesty or making some kind of statement or somehow being seen as disrespectful to her husband, all of those were assumptions they had in first century Greco-Roman world. Those are not assumptions that we have any longer. If we, if that, in fact, if we see a woman insist on coming in with her head uncovered, what are we going to do? Doesn't she know she's in church? She should take her hat off. Because our assumption is that, you know, having a hat, doesn't bother me if you have a hat on, but, you know, having a hat on is somehow disrespectful, right? That's what our culture has taught us. So all of a sudden we look at that and we go, okay, what might that mean for us today? Because if a woman chooses to have her head covered or uncovered, it just doesn't even register with us. Okay, here's how it might apply. Ladies, it might apply if you say, hey, we're going for a girlfriend's weekend and everybody leaves their wedding rings behind. 
Everybody, everybody tracking? That might be, that might be problematic. And, and by the way, fellas, you can't do that either. Okay, so measuring the width of the river. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? And by the way, let me, let me just highlight some very specific differences you want to be on the lookout for. Sometimes it's going to be real easy to go their world, our world. But other times we're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's some real differences. Okay, here's one. Culture. I've already used the example of women with their head covered. Let me give you another one. When Jesus says, go the extra mile, that was because he was living in a country that was occupied by the Roman Empire. And one of the things that a centurion could do is they could insist that the people who were under their control would carry their bag for a mile. In fact, Jews of Jesus' day had even learned how many steps it took. And once they got there, they were done. So imagine the surprise of a centurion who is used to being in control of the situation and demanding that you take my bag for a mile when someone who is forced to take the bag says, I'll take it for a second mile. All of a sudden, they're in control of the conversation, not the centurion. Well, see, that, I mean, I, I, I do not mean this in any way, because I didn't learn this. I went to Bible college. How many of you say, I didn't know that? Yeah, that, that's, that's new to me. Uh, a Samaritan was someone that was considered religiously and ethnically compromised. Today, we, if we say you're a Samaritan, you don't get insulted. You feel good about yourself. So what are we saying here? There are times in which things can get past us that if we don't appreciate, we're not going to fully appreciate what's happening in that passage. So culture. Uh, language. The Bible was written, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a smattering of Aramaic. Uh, the New Testament was written Greek with like a sentence or two in Aramaic. And so you might ask yourself, hey, am I sure that the Bible translation I'm using got the language right? Uh, how much time has passed? One of the things with reading the Bible that can get confusing is who's in charge here? You know, one minute it's the Israelites, and then it's the Babylonians, and then it's the Assyrians, and then it's the, you know, Persians, and then it's the Greeks, and then by the time Jesus shows up, this is always funny. By the time Jesus shows up, Rome's in control of Judea, and the Judeans speak Aramaic, but they are considered Hebrews. What? And I understand. Listen, I understand. That's why you have to ask some questions. When, when was this written? And then, of course, what's the situation like? Okay, so the question is, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Next slide, please. Okay, this is where, this is where things are really going to begin to apply to our lives. This is where we're going to begin to get some help and some guidance from God and his word. What we've been doing is learning about the there and then. Now what we're trying to do, okay, is go to the here and now. We're going to call this crossing the principalizing bridge. Crossing the principalizing bridge. In other words, what is the theological principle in this text. And you know what? Even as I hear myself say that, I go, man, that sounds really seminary. So let me put it yet another way, okay? What's the big idea of this text? What's the universal idea of this text? What is being taught here? What's the principle? What's the idea? What's the instruction? Listen carefully. That is for everybody everywhere. You know, there's some things in the Bible that appear to be only for them and then, and there and then. But there's other things in the Bible that are here and now for everybody everywhere. 
And the whole reason we went through step one and step two is to try to be able to identify that, okay? And we're not doing that because we're playing loosely with the Bible. We're doing that because we're reading the Bible seriously. Now, I know you will never do this to your pastors, but when I pastored, and I pastored for six years, every so once in a while, I'd have someone come ask me a question, and I could tell it was really more of an accusation. I know they don't do this at New Community, but it happened to me a few times. And I remember one time someone came up to me and said, do you read the Bible literally? Right? And, and look, in this story, I'm the hero. My wife's not here, so I'm going to tell because I have so few of these stories, uh, which I'm the hero. But this day I was on my game. I don't always return the serve as quickly as I did, okay? But I looked at this person and I said, I read the Bible seriously. I read the Bible seriously. So when we're going through these steps This is not an attempt to get out from under God's instruction for our life. This is an attempt to dig in to what God has for our life, to better understand what God has for our life. This is not an attempt to not to take the Bible seriously or not to read the Bible literally. This is an attempt to read it seriously. Now, let's return to some of the examples. When we talked about women with their head uncovered, we say, okay, that's an issue of modesty. Uh, When we talked about going the extra mile, that's an issue where someone tries to take advantage and instead you act like a servant. Listen, Roman centurions were certainly used to hearing their Jewish, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? For those they occupied, they they were certainly used to hearing Jewish people grumble under their breath about having to carry a bag a mile. You know, there was no question there. They were not expecting them to smile, okay? Uh, you know, they didn't always act like Negan. About three of you will get what I'm talking about. Um, the rest of you are like, what's he talking about? Is that in the Bible somewhere? Take my word for it. Um, but, but what would have startled them completely caught them off guard, made them wonder what's wrong with this person and what's their agenda is a willingness to go further. And there will be times at work or a supervisor, a manager, someone who has authority will will try to take control of you by taking control of the situation, and you flip that on its head by saying, what I do, I do for the glory of God. I'm not working for you because I like you. I'm working for you because God loves me. Is everybody, everybody, you see what I'm saying? And so what we're doing suddenly is we're taking this idea and we're taking it across the bridge and going, that's what that looks like today. That's what that looks like today. Okay, um, I've already gone through the first three. Let's stop and talk. Let me, let me hear from some people maybe I haven't heard from yet. I'd really like to hear from, from some, some sisters as well, some ladies. Uh, somebody on this side. Question, comment, clarification. Yeah, but, what about, what if? Mama said, anybody? Question, comment? Okay, I know how to get you talking. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to your neighbor and tell them something about what I've been talking about that's still not really clear. Go ahead and do that right now. Okay, go ahead and do that. I mean, I want to hear mumbling as if I'm the new pastor and I just changed the carpet in the first three weeks of being here. Okay, talk to each other. 
Talk to each other, okay? You guys talk to each other. What is something that I have talked about that you say, you know what, it's still not as clear as, as it's still not quite making sense, or maybe I'm not so sure, or maybe you want to be the devil's advocate. All of that is fine and good. Talk to, there we go. Let me hear some mumbling. Go ahead, turn to each other. What's a question? What's a comment? What's something that's not clear? There we go. Very good. Pastor Sarah, do I have till eight? Yeah? Oh, don't say that. They get scared. Like, oh, no. If we're at a Methodist church, they wouldn't worry about that. But it's simply like, oh, no. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He's got one. Okay, go for it. Oh, man, that's a gnarly question. Sure. That's a great question. So his question was, and if I misrepresent you, you help me out. So why is it that we would feel like it's okay to um, say, hey, that culture doesn't, that, that cultural relevance is, is, is not, doesn't apply to us anymore? Like, why don't we try to reproduce that culture today? Well, I, I would say first, honestly, it would be impossible to do so. I mean, that would, that would require us to not have electricity, to, you know, women and children are seen as, as almost, you know, property and Romans would have to, you know, I mean, the, the Italians can't even get their economy together, much less invade us. And you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's so many things. I really shouldn't joke that way. Um, but, but there would be so, in other words, to reproduce this situation would be impossible. But now let me get really helpful here. It's a great question you've asked. If you think about it, even in the Bible, they did this. Listen carefully. Even in the Bible, they did this. During the Babylonian captivity, they lived in a different place, they had a different language, and they were surrounded by a different culture, and so they had to start making some changes in order to worship God in a way that made sense in Babylon. Then, there's a story in the Bible, don't know if you're familiar with it, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah building the wall. It says that the people had been in captivity for so long, they didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. So one person had to read it and another person had to translate it into a language they understood. So what we, this, this thing we're seeing, this is not a 21st century thing. This is not a thing that you know, Bible professors do to keep themselves employed. This is something that God's people have been doing almost immediately. As soon as they found themselves in a different culture, they had to go, okay, what is it that we can do that will honor God in this culture in a way that makes sense to this culture? Yeah, what a great, what a great question. I hope that helps you out. What a great question. Yeah, cult, culture changes, right? And, and let me give you one more example. Sorry, I'm on a roll now. Uh, you're, you're, I wish you hadn't said anything. This guy. Um, missionaries do this. Have you ever been on a missions trip? There's things you can and cannot do and say and dress, and it, it's because what? It's because the culture. Right, it's because of the culture, and you realize that you real you realize that you realize that hey, these are really secondary matters. But because any of you have served in the military, you served in different countries. I'm telling you, they told you this is you know. My dad grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia for part of his life. His dad worked for Aramco, and there were certain things you did and did not do as you engaged with the native population. So yeah, what a great question though. But I hope that that illuminates it. Fantastic. Uh, somebody on this side, I want to hear from a sister, from ladies, because. If it weren't for you guys, seriously, the church in America would be in so much trouble. No, I'm not, man, I'm prophesying with my eyes open. That's all true. Uh, somebody, question, comment? Yeah, but, okay, what'd you say to each other? What'd you, okay, how many of you, you got something you want to say out loud, but you're afraid to say it out loud, so go ahead and say it out loud. 
Okay, how many of you would be willing to throw the person you were talking to under the bus by repeating their question? <laughs> Who, who'll do that? Who'll repeat the question? To be, okay, I'm coming back to this side. Don't think I've forgotten. Yes, sir, please. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Woo! 911, there's been a person thrown in front of a bus. Get here as soon as you can. Okay, thank you, sir. Please. Yeah, sure. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's around chapter 14. Paul says that he doesn't allow women to speak in the church. And where Christians have disagreed as to, as to whether that means lead or whether that means speak. Well, so a few things about this. Earlier in the book, he talks about when women prophesy. So clearly they're speaking in the church. So then you have to go, well, what did it mean to them? As we began to examine using the steps we've been talking about, we find out that in ancient Corinth, if a woman was seen with her head uncovered or calling out to people during a teaching, it was seen as disruptive to the teaching as well as disrespectful to the husband. Why would a woman have done that? Because they were often separated and women didn't have the educational opportunities they do today. So imagine, if you will, for just a moment, a wife sitting here, a husband sitting here, and the minister is saying something, and the wife turns and calls out to her husband what it is that he's saying the message that sent to Corinthian culture was that this is one of those secret mystery religions that disrespects and disrupts the family as well as disrupting the service. So when you read that and you go, oh, you know, that makes more sense. Now, in all fairness, there are Christian denominations that believe that the implications of that teaching is that women are not to be in offices of leadership. That is not the position the assemblies of God take and if you want to read more about our position, if you went to ag.org, we have a position paper on women in ministry, and you can actually see us doing this very thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, what a great question. Thank you. Anybody else on this side? Let me have one question from this side, then I'm going to keep going. One question from this side. You realize you're keeping them captive by not asking a question. Who's got one? Anybody? Anybody? Any of my brothers or sisters? Okay, all right. Then, step four. Step four. Uh, oh, sorry, I forgot this. I wanted to elaborate on this for a second. What is, sorry, so I'm still in step three. What is a theological principle? Sorry about that, I am still in step three. What is a theological principle? The main idea of a passage, the overarching theme, the eternal principle for all of God's people in all ages. Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm repeating myself. Does everybody get this? I'm using restatement. In my, in my preaching students in the audience, I'm using restatement. I'm saying the same thing a different way, okay? So what we mean by theological principle is the overarching theme, the main idea, the eternal principle. What's being taught here? Modesty. What's being taught here? Loving your enemy. What's being taught here? Responding to exploitation with servanthood. Um, that's what's being taught here. And so you look at that and you go, okay, that's the big idea. The culture will sometimes be similar. The culture will sometimes be different. Um, okay, now, step four, consult the biblical map. What do we mean by this? Here's what we mean. And I'm gonna give you something 
that I really believe many of you will take with you for the rest of your journey as a student of the Bible. I, I really do. How does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Watch what I'm about to say. Man, this is going to help you so much. It's going to help you, and it's going to help you be more discerning. So you go, okay, I know what it meant to them and then. I see the differences between their world and ours. I think I've identified the principle. Watch this. How does what I've identified fit with the rest of the Bible? How is what I've identified fit with the rest of the Bible? Let me put it another way. If your interpretation of a verse or a text goes against the rest of the Bible, that's the wrong interpretation. Do, do you see what we're doing here? Do you see what we're doing here? If you're, this, is, this is one of the dangers of reading the Bible like a Chinese fortune cookie. And don't get me wrong, God is good and he's merciful. And there are times he speaks to us that way. And there are books in the Bible, Proverbs, you know, the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments. People argue about the Bible code. We can't even follow the Ten Commandments, much less look for a Bible code. And there are parts of the Bible that read that way. But what we'll often do is we'll take a single verse and we'll say, the Bible says this, but what this teaches us is, yeah, the Bible may say that, but does the Bible mean that? And what people sometimes do is they'll lift a verse out of its context and they'll come up with a weird teaching. Let me give you an example, and I'm not trying to insult anyone. I say this with love in my heart. In Corinthians, there is a passage, it's a weird passage, makes reference to baptism of the dead. Sounds like a heavy metal band I used to listen to when I was in high school. Bapti what was your favorite band? Iron Maiden, Baptism for the Dead. Um, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me be honest with you. We think we know. But can I tell you why we're not certain? Because it's nowhere else in the Bible. It's nowhere else in the Bible. There is at least one major religious group, not a Christian group, and again, not trying to be ugly or insulting, but it's just true. You know, we, just, we really disagree with them on this point. There's at least one major religious group that, that believe that baptism for the dead is actually something you're supposed to continue to participate in. The problem is that nowhere else in the Bible where baptism is talked about does it mention the dead or, or, or corpses, you know, hold them down longer because they make plus time. You don't get any of that. So what's that, what's that mean? Whatever I learn about baptism, if I, listen carefully, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you this is a money statement. It, it, you're you're going to take this with you. Let unclear passages be interpreted by more clear passages. Let, let, me, let me say that again. Let unclear passages be interpreted by more clear passages. Let unclear passages be interpreted by more clear passages. And, and I hope you see what we've just done there. We have just given you some defense against some people who will sometimes pull out a single verse and just because they can find a sentence in the Bible, they act like that's what the Bible teaches. And when you come across a verse that's a little unclear, let the more clear inform the less clear. Let me give you an example from everyday life. So I am the father of three teenagers and a young adult. And if all of a sudden I begin to cry and curl up in the fetal position, you'll understand. Father of three teenagers and a young adult. If I say to my kids, okay, your mom and I are going out on a date, you're not to leave the house after midnight, okay? Then at 12.15, the house catches fire. 
Do they think that I really meant you can't leave the house after midnight under any circumstances? The whole reason I said don't leave the house was for their safety. Does everybody, everybody see? So, so what ends up happening is they take what I've said and go, I've got to interpret what he said against all the other things that he says that are for my best interests. Everybody tracking? Everybody tracking? And let me just say, any interpretation of Scripture that both does not reflect God's love and God's challenge to change us is an interpretation that needs to be considered questionable. God's love and God's desire to change us. He loves us, and he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. Okay, um, number five. Or, sorry, next slide. Uh, I've hit middle age, so I hardly even know where I am anymore. I'm like, I'm like the Mick Jagger of Bible study. I don't know where I am half the time. Just turn on the lights, I do my thing. Okay, what is the key thing to remember about completing step four? Well, here we go. Step five. You can't just sit there looking and discussing the map. In other words, what we've got to do is we've got to move on to step five. So what have we done? What did the text mean there and then? How is their world different from our world? What's the big idea this passage is teaching? How does this big idea fit with the rest of the ideas in the Bible, especially the big important ideas? And then ladies and gentlemen, and by the way, sorry, let me chase this rabbit for a second. It's okay for people to disagree about some of these secondary things. I mean, it's okay for people to disagree about some of these kinds of things. What happens, though, human nature, we want to make minor things major things, and then the major things we have a hard time being obedient with or obedient to. So just be careful with that. That, that, that. That's a problem that's as old as the Bible, Phariseeism. Okay, step five, grasping the text in our town. So here we are. We're in downtown Mesquite. You recognize it? Me neither. Um, grasping the text in our town, right? How should individuals, Christians today, live out the theological principles? How should individual Christians today live out the theological principles? What's it mean to be a good Samaritan today? What's it mean to go the extra mile today? What's it mean to be modest uh, and not give anyone the impression, whether male or female, that I am somehow not committed to my spouse? What, what, what does that look like today? Okay? And that's the purpose of the Bible study in the first place. I want to be transformed by Christ. Martin Luther said, your study of the Bible is not complete until you've had an encounter with Jesus. And this is, this is where that happens. I want to illustrate with one passage tonight the process that I've been talking about. And if you, if you have your Bible or have uh, your Bible app and it's, it's easy to reach, um, I'm reading out of James. I'm reading out of James chapter 2. I'm reading out of James chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses uh, 14 through 19. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Now, as I read this passage, I want you to be thinking to yourself about these steps we've learned tonight. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Watch this. In James's town, 
There were people who were taking the teaching of justification by faith and they were using it as a license to say, as long as I have faith, I can live however I want. And maybe you just thought of someone you went to high school with. <laughs> no, no, don't point. That's awkward. Okay, uh, yeah, right? I, I mean, it's true, right? But again, what are we going to do? We're going to do the study. We're going to do the there and then. And here's what we find out. James is writing to a church that has heard the teaching of justification by faith alone, and there are people who are misunderstanding it. There are people who are abusing it. There are people who are saying, you know, I've got faith. And James is saying, oh, faith alone, right, is not what Jesus and Paul are talking about. Okay, watch this. So that's there and then. Well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, okay, so what are some of the differences? Well, some of the differences uh, between their world and our world is that, you know, we, we come from the Protestant tradition. We are very, uh, very, very um, uh, celebratory about the idea of being saved by faith alone, that it's not by good works, it's not by religious activity, but it's only by trusting God and taking him at his word and accepting his forgiveness when we've been convicted of our sins. That's how we're, that's how we're saved. So that's kind of where we're at. We're, that's where we're at culturally, but we understand that where he's at culturally is they're taking that message and they're saying, I can believe the right things and then do the wrong things. Or how about this? Maybe even worse, I can believe the right things and do no things. Okay? Well, then I look at the principle and I go, okay, what's the principle? The principle is if you've got faith, your works will show it. Well, then I compare it with the rest of the Bible. Let me just mention a few places. Paul in the book of Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And you know what's interesting about the fruit of the Spirit? Not a one of them can be had without other people being around. I didn't express that very clearly. All the fruit of the Spirit involve fruit that other people can see. Patience, kindness, love, forbearance. Guess what? You can't be fruitful by yourself. You have to be around other people. Well, all of a sudden, James doesn't sound so crazy. Now in the book of Galatians, you know what else it teaches? That you would, um, the expression, I'm going to summarize it here, um, faith working itself through love. Whoa, sounds similar. Well, then Jesus said, you'll know them, right? By their fruits. Jesus in John says, the world will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Well, see, all of a sudden what I'm doing is I'm taking that teaching and I'm comparing it. I'm checking the theological map and I'm making sure. And then all of a sudden I go, okay, so what does this mean for me today in my town, in this town, in here and now? What it means is it's okay to have the bumper sticker in the t-shirt and the expressions on social media, but people ought to be able to look at my life and say, it's not a faith without works. It's a faith that's now put me to work. I'm not saved by good works. I'm saved for good works. I hope that this Bible journey has been helpful to you. This interpretive journey has been helpful to you. It has been a real joy to have the opportunity to share uh, these steps with you. Again, if any of you want to dialogue further, I'd be happy to. Uh, they'll have my email and they'll share the slides with you. I'm very, very excited that you have a leadership team that is committed to helping you grow in faith and knowledge. I hope you can appreciate what a blessing that is. And in some cases, sadly, in America, what a rarity that is. See, they love you, but they love you too much to leave you where they found you. And they want to say amen. Amen.
and they want to share with you the disciplines to cultivate your life so you'll grow in grace and knowledge. And one of the first ways that's going to happen is by rightly dividing the word of truth. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for your attention. Pastor Sarah. Man, that was awesome. I hope you all brought your notebooks or your iPads or your something or other, and you were grabbing a hold of those sermon notes right there and jotting all that down. Um, but like he said, we will uh, we'll make this available to you um, online, and uh, we also recorded, if that's okay, and we'll, we'll put that on there as well so you can go back and refer to that or share it with other people if you want.